90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Uh, doing pretty well. How about yourself? Oh, not too bad. We're again preparing for our last round of workshops. <laughs> <laughs> yep, exactly. Um, and I'm still doing the same thing is just, you know, writing finals and grading papers. So it's very boring yeah. around here. <laughs> I have to say I've been pretty excited. We, uh, all of our workshop material, you know, we have it tested automatically to mm -hmm. make sure that we're not sending broken examples and broken code out to students. And that normally takes about an hour and a half for all of those tests to run. So we just figured out how to do everything in a multi-processing type way on our remote testing servers. So our time went way, way down. We're deploying things to our students a lot faster, and Ooh, I'm very you. excited about it. <laughs> <laughs> Making all these uh, interesting computer strides that I have no idea what you're talking about, but that's okay. <laughs> yeah, it's it's been an adventure. Well, you know, John, you have to slow down though, because if you're going to do it twice as fast, they'll probably have you do twice as many workshops. So. <laughs> be that careful. does seem to be how things go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But, well, we're really excited. We have a special guest with us today that was suggested by a former guest of the show, Bob Busby. We're happy to welcome Dr. Uri Tinbrink to the show. Hi, how are you? Very well. How are you? Doing great. Excellent. So could, could you tell us a little bit about your background? Um, Okay, I'm a I'm a research uh, I'm a research geophysicist at the U.S. Geological Survey. Uh, I've been doing research there for about uh, 26 years. Before that, I did a postdoc at Stanford University, and I did my graduate uh, my graduate studies at Lamont Doherty Earth Observatory of Columbia University in marine geophysics. And before that, I studied uh, geology and physics at the Hebrew University in Israel. Uh, apart from uh, doing my uh, research at the USGS, I'm also the chief editor of, uh, of the journal, journal of Geophysical Research, Solid Earth. And I'm an adjunct scientist at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution and an adjunct uh, professor at the University of Haifa, where I was a chairman for three years and decided to leave that. Wow, so that's a lot of hats to wear. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Many different roles. And, you know, we just talked recently about academic service, and being an editor was one of those that uh, is a role that takes a lot of time and is often underappreciated, I think. But it's a very important job. Well, it's a little bit like a it's a little bit like a, it's a little bit like a treadmill. You know, you are constantly running, <laughs> and you never get there. <laughs> I was just but, thinking uh, about um, I'm going to submit something to JGR, so I was like, oh, wait a minute, ne excellent. We'll have to talk after this. <laughs> but that's solid. But, but that JGR. Works, yeah, not not or solid or earth, probably. Solid, yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, I'll, you know what. So I think that I'll put a good word. Excellent. For you, you know, <laughs> EIC of uh, of uh, atmosphere. No, no, so no, it's actually it's it's actually a well-run machine. You know, I, so I figured as much. It's not too bad. It's quite interesting. Yeah. So, like many geophysicists, it sounds like you started out with backgrounds in pure physics and geology. At what 
got you into the field? What made you interested in this as a, a career path? Well, I think that um, I let myself uh, get there. Uh, I listened to myself, even though I did not know it. <laughs> I think that as a very small child, I was always very interested uh, in the earth, and I was interested in math. Uh, I seem to recall that I was five or six years old, and I read a book, because I grew up in Israel, about a boy traveling in the Negev desert in Israel and finding a fossil. And the fossil told him there was a sea there once. And that really blew me away completely. I couldn't believe, you know, it's like a desert and there, was, and there is a sea in the desert, you know. You know, it's like a five years old, you know, imagining those kind of things. Uh, you know, this is kind of the things. And I remember myself, I grew up in Haifa, which is a ridge uh, sticking into the sea, into the Mediterranean Sea. And around that age, you know, I remember people talking about the earth is round, but once upon a time, people talked about the earth is flat. And I thought, how stupid are these people <laughs> who talked about flat earth? You stand on top of the hill and you see the sea to this side and you see the sea to the other side. So it must be round, isn't it? <laughs> you know, those kind of things of a five year, from a five years old you know, perspective. And then I like to, when I was older, you know, one of my main hobbies with some friends, we used to go hiking a lot, you know, in, in canyons and deserts and stuff like that. So, you know, kind of the outdoors. And But I studied humanities uh, in high school because of my big brother who did that too <laughs> and because my family were entirely artists and stuff like that. But uh, after military service, it's kind of slowly I came to the realization that uh, science is a lot of fun and then then I know nothing about it and especially not about physics you know so and uh, that I would like to know more I'd like to understand you know, I don't want just want to blurt out words that I don't understand you know like you know frequency <laughs> what is frequency like uh, yeah so what is amplitude you know I mean, it, it, simple things like that even you know and let alone single sideband or things <laughs> of that sort. So I decided I'll, I'll go and, and study a little bit, and I still was not sure. So I took, uh, I took all the sciences. I was lucky because uh, that they allowed me to do it. Typically in Israel, uh, it's more like the European system where you have to choose just one subject and that's it. And so I decided I'll take everything, and I took geology, and I took uh, physics and physics and chemistry and stuff and math. But I found physics to be just incredibly fascinating and uh, and I liked you know geology but uh, I also realized that my handicap is uh, in that I never remember names of all the different <laughs> fossils and all the different rocks and stuff like that so I'd better be a geophysicist you know exactly. <laughs> it's safer it's safer um, so you know so uh, and even that I, re I recall uh, I had a little crisis toward the end we had an what is it, uh, linear algebra two test, and uh, a friend acquaintance of mine uh, got a seizure in the middle of the class, and I was kind of sitting next to her and tried to do something, and I felt, oh, I'm so stupid. Why am I studying all these things where I cannot help a, you know, I cannot help yeah. a friend. So I almost said, well, I'll go and study medicine. But then I remembered how much you have to memorize when you study medicine. So. No way. <laughs> so no doctor, no paleontologist, geophysicist. Uh, exactly. And then, 
And then I went to... Um, so then, you know, I had really good time in Israel and uh, I decided to do something good for society. So I started the master's in solar energy. But a friend of mine nagged me to uh, also to also, you know, apply to different schools in the U.S. So I did that. I almost forgot about it. And <laughs> we actually got accepted on a joint fellowship to a university I'd never heard its name called the uh, University of Colorado at Boulder, you know, one of those <laughs> places never heard, you know, you know, when you're <laughs> and I didn't have any mentor or any. it wasn't like, oh, you know, you go and ask somebody, an adult, you know, a responsible <laughs> adult, adult, and they tell you what to do. So I said, no, thank you. And then suddenly in the middle of the year, they sent me a uh, invitation uh, to Columbia University and they said, uh, and you're funded for half a year. And I said, there's nothing better than that. Somebody pays for me to live in New York City for half a year and then I'm going home. (laughs) (laughs) And well, and now we are talking. So that is, that has been, uh, that has been 30 some years (laughs) later. So So you can imagine uh, that really, uh, when I came there, it was uh, uh, still kind of, almost the height or just beyond the height of you know plate tectonics and most of the lot of the work about plate you know on plate tectonics was done there right at Le Mans, mm-hmm. you know all the giants and it was like it was i felt like a kid in a candy store <laughs> i thought it was just like there wasn't anything better than that so that was really nice and well i mean you know so and i met my wife there too and you know and and the rest is history <laughs> <laughs> so so it was all kind of very uh, roundabout way, but uh, uh, I think that it was well. It's, it's a worthwhile trip. It still <laughs> is, you know. So, you know, I, Shannon, I, I can sympathize with the, the memorizing because I'm I'm horrible at that as well. <laughs> and Shannon always gives me a hard time and says, you know, and I agree to the geophysicists. There's dark rockite and light rockite, <laughs> and the rest exactly. of it's just velocities. Uh. <laughs> exactly exactly this is what it is and and you know you always have to you know each time i forget everything so i have to start from 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 ground you know developing the equations if i can doing all you know it's like see everything from this the is start, very comforting you know? though to talk to someone who's as accomplished as you and you know listen and be like oh thank god when i had to look up that intro stuff last <laughs> week that i felt dumb for forgetting you know like okay <laughs> oh yeah it's a, and and i can tell you there's i don't know if you know the name you know uh if you know the name uh this is you know walter Pittman. Mm-hmm. have you ever heard he was one of the giants mm-hmm. also yes. of plate tectonics mm-hmm. so he had another saying that i always follow when you're on the company of many geologists you say you're a geophysicist when you're in a company of of many geophysicists you say you're a geologist (laughs) (laughs) oh that's beautiful john is totally stealing that (laughs) yes so you know yeah yeah you can say you can so you can you know attribute it uh, to walter Pittman. oh absolutely that's beautiful (laughs) (laughs) yeah so you've you've got this this interest in doing geophysics and from your background mostly field experiments that you've been involved in a lot of these experiments so what would you say your primary research focus has been over the course of your career in general it was kind of uh, understanding the 
big picture or you know you know original picture of the earth how things are are working and from a mechanistic point of view but uh, to be honest with you I there are two things first I get bored after a while with the subject that I'm studying mm -hmm. so I want to move <laughs> on but more than that I feel like uh, we all develop a certain attachment to what we study so once we come up with an idea it's very hard to let go even if the idea is wrong all we do is we try to prove that we are right you know because right. you know psychologically it's very difficult to to break away from it so I'd rather actually leave what I studied behind and move on to the next subject and let somebody else prove me right or wrong you know and sometimes people come back to me and say oh you know sometimes it depends <laughs> sometimes it's, oh you know we found and it's perfect you know whatever you predicted or whatever you said or in your in your primitive way and now <laughs> we could prove it and that's great and sometimes it's the other way around but you know it's i'm no longer emotionally you know attached to it you know i don't want to fight battles i don't want to revise my thesis for 30 years you know? <laughs> so, right. so so uh, you know it's it's a lot more interesting because at the, at the end it's uh and i think shannon you know it even more i mean what we do is a is really a hobby yeah, exactly. you know? <laughs> it's not a i mean life is different you know I so mean, true. this is like the icing this is the uh this is the fun <laughs> stuff you know but I mean, it, it really is true that to do research, it has to be a passion. And you do get very attached to these ideas. I know even just during the course of five years during graduate school, you get very attached to some ideas. Yeah, that you danger, come up with. dangerously so in many cases, I think. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and it's, you know, and it is, it is, a, it is, you know, psychologically such a natural thing because it's, it becomes part of you. Mm hmm that if somebody comes and say, oh, you know, I don't think that what you thought about or came up with is right, it's like, you know, it's like, but that's me, you know, <laughs> even though you don't want to say it out loud. Exactly. You know? It's like a personal attack or something. That's an excellent point. Yeah, there is a person. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, so it's much easier and much better to just move on. And there's so many interesting problems, you know, out there. And uh, I find not all, you know, not all the problems that I tackled were just this type of mechanistic work you know mechanics of or the process of mountain building or trenches or things like that but uh, or structurally faults but you know some of them were also with with glaciology and with uh, sediment uh, de uh, transport or with landslides and stuff like that and, no, it's the end. It's, it's all interesting. <laughs> that's, that's so great because I think I need to focus on stuff and really learn all of it. And then you're saying it's okay that I just follow these like little side things that I think about. <laughs> that's excellent. Well, you know, it's, it's kind of every, I mean, uh, since we, of course, also are in the field of science and we are judged by papers mm -hmm. and, and things like that. It's kind of, yeah, you have to, to you have to produce something, right. but... If you produce something that is fairly, you know, you can say is somewhat more significant and you write one or two papers on the subject and then you move on to the next subject. If you are allowed, you know, one of the lucky things that I have actually sort of at the USGS is because we're fully funded. Uh, we can learn new mm -hmm. things. 
you know, all the time. And I think that one of the things that I found most satisfying is just the fact that I can learn new things, you know. Right. Read what other people did, read papers and say, oh, you know, this is really interesting. This is, you know, it's like, whoa, I didn't think of that, you know. And, uh, yeah, so. And it's that's, it's yeah. always strange, too, when you go down some of these side project routes. Uh, the most cited paper that I ever wrote was an unfunded side project that I did over a summer. <laughs> uh, it just seems to be how oh, it yeah. goes. Oh, definitely. <laughs> Oh. oh, definitely. Yeah, I mean, I had, I have several of those. I have one where where we wrote it over beer on a, a, a sort of a TGIF. You know, <laughs> we started talking about something. You know, and you know, and sort of in this respect, I also, you know, coming from a family of of artists, I don't see much difference between science and art. You know, in, in sort of in the creative process. You know, we should be a little bit. I mean, I think. Well, I think artists also have to be very disciplined. And they go through periods of time, you know, where they paint in a certain style and then they get tired of it and they do something, you know, it's the same thing. I mean, uh, so except we get paid and they don't. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Um, that was always the joke about meteorology versus engineers is that we had no accountability, so we never got paid for anything. <laughs> basically oh i see um, <laughs> no but but i but, but i think that's uh, this is much better nobody can ever catch exactly. you wrong <laughs> see that's, that's great because i teach a geologist for or, or geology intro geology for scientists so usually it's filled up with petroleum engineers and i always tell them and they hate yeah. it and i say the best engineers and scientists in general are the most creative and they get so mad at me because they don't want to hear that and um that's that's pretty funny to hear you say that as well because it's so true. I think that you know the the creative well, yeah. ones are the successful engineers, you know, versus just the the person following well, the yeah book. sure. So, so a, a lot of your research has been based on field data. Would you classify yourself as an observational geophysicist? Yeah, yeah. I you know I. I use models, I use fairly simple models or models that somebody else wrote and I use uh, those as a tool to help out with the understanding. But in general, as time went on, I feel uh, that I started more with seismic refraction and some gravity, but I feel that as time goes on, I like to focus on the problem and if I can solve it totally by myself I'll do it and if I need some other people uh, I'll ask for help from them and then bring to the table actually many many directions but the point too that one has to remember is that uh, earth sciences is an observational science you know fundamentally uh, we have to be honest that you know our physics is not earth-shattering <laughs> physics you know for example right. and our chemistry is not earth-shattering chemistry i mean with the exception i think that there were some uh, major contributions in terms of i think uh, you know signal processing oh, absolutely that came from that came from seismology you know but so beyond that you know there isn't as much and and i think the real challenge that we have as as earth scientists at least that's the way that i see it is in uh, finding the right observations, you know, 
because it's so difficult to observe the Earth. I mean, we are little ants on on a huge big ball, you know, and we cannot really get into the ball. So we don't, you know, unlike people studying the brain or something like that. So we can't do, you know, we can't look at it from all directions, and right? From inside and stuff. Like that. So, so the challenges are really, you know, how how cleverly can you use an observation to say something about about the Earth and about the processes happening there. So I feel very comfortable with it, you know, going mostly from the observational point of view. But observation means, you know, so for me, sometimes models that give me better insight and help out are for me an observation. It's not like a model for the sake of the model. Right. So a lot of these field expeditions, you know, looking at your at your CV, you've had some incredible field experiences, uh, yeah. lots of cruises, Antarctic traverses all kinds of surveys what are some of your favorite types of field experiments or experiences yeah you know uh, so so of course antarctica you know when you go to antarctica that it's going to be a very unique you know a unique experience it'll be very very different but as far as cruises are concerned some cruises turn out to be extremely exciting and other ones are are not that and you know and and you and there's no telling ahead of time <laughs> right yeah you know sometimes uh i also worked in uh in the middle east we did uh, some land work along the border between israel and jordan and we had some really strange sometimes strange experiences uh uh you know there as well which was kind of really interesting um so you know i mean one of the things that uh, comes to mind too is in 1992 we worked in lake baikal uh, in russia and that was right after the fall of the soviet union so the experience of uh, russia coming out of the soviet union was i found it almost like uh you know i found it you know surreal it was almost like uh of Alice in Wonderland it, you you did not know what to expect you know there were first of all it was very beautiful in Lake Baikal but there were some parts that were extremely professional and the people very intelligent and other parts that were just like you didn't believe that those things happen you know there were still like uh, we took a bus with the staff from the scientific institute there and they were all going for the day to pick up cucumbers in the field. Um, wow. Because in the old Soviet Union, you know, people would be rounded up to help with the harvest. But now they no longer needed that, but they didn't have food. Oh, my gosh. So wow. they did that, you know. Or, uh, or we were on the lake with... Um, and we deployed ocean bottom seismometers, so we had uh, so we had batteries, but we had no food. So we would stop another boat, and we would barter <sighs> food for the batteries for the partly used batteries. Oh and at night, they uh, uh, we would uh, beach the boat on shore, and the crew would turn on the engine, and all night long they would fish. And in the morning, we wake up, and all our ocean bottom seismometers were covered with bloods because 
with, with blood because they would uh, kill the fish by hitting them on <laughs> on our on our ocean bottom seismometer, which we called omulbiting stations. And then they will and then they will hang they will hang the fish to dry. Some of it we ate. So basically, we ate for thirty days on the ship, on the boat. There we ate. Um, we ate the fish, this omul fish, uh, some potatoes, and omul fish and potatoes, and that's it. <laughs> the, wow. And there was nothing else. <laughs> so, you know, so you know, th- there were things. It was. I mean, I can start telling you stories, <laughs> but you know, the, so the so the contrasts. But on the other hand, you went to a village of about 120 people in the middle of nowhere, and they had a little museum in the village. Mm-hmm. You know, so. It was the whole, the whole juxtaposition was totally surreal, and that was, you know, that was very interesting. You know, so, so I think a lot. So then, a lot of the experiences at the end are the experiences of actually meeting people on the ground, not being a tourist, but actually hanging around, working side by side with them, you know, finding out all the problems, the strange problems that otherwise will, you know, you'll never encounter. When Letting them use your seismometers to kill their dinner, you know, <laughs> normal <laughs> yeah. stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. Or, oh, we worked in, oh, we worked in, uh, we worked in, uh, along the Jordanian border and our seismometers, you know, disappeared. And some of them uh, couldn't figure out and at first the Jordanian they sent a uh, they sent a tracker first they thought oh you know maybe one of the soldiers is playing uh, <laughs> foul play or something of like that or trying to sabotage things and stuff like that then at the end it turned out that there were those uh, wild dogs kind of coyote type things that really loved the orange connector oh. between the geophone oh, and no. the recorder <laughs> they like to chew on them so they would <coughs> take them and they would drag oh, them <laughs> and sometimes they actually drag them into a uh, so if, uh, one of them they dragged into a minefield oh. so so then so then one of the trackers or one of the soldiers said i don't know how dedicated we are so do you want us to go and get it <laughs> we said no i think we can give, <laughs> we can give up on that one <laughs> we can get another instrument yeah <laughs> You know, so I mean, you know, so there, there are things, uh, or, or that you are rushed to talk with the head of the of the military intelligence, you know, before the whole thing starts. You know, it's like, what are <laughs> you know, like, why, you know, and then they give you a present. You know how it is. It's like they just want to know who you are, whether you are not a spy yeah, or something. Exactly. I don't know. It was like, yeah. right. so. I run into that a lot because I do paleomagnetism. So, you know, I'm sitting there with this big chainsaw, right? And yeah, we run into that a lot too. (laughs) What are you doing with that (laughs) chainsaw? Don't worry about it. (laughs) Oh yeah, people are, you know, I mean, I think that it's very bizarre for people, you know, but, but, but then they of course like, yeah, exactly. So uh, so you can't have had this experiences in Antarctica though. So who do you talk to out there? (laughs) (laughs) We talked to a skua. We talked to a skua. This was actually, I don't know if you know what a skua is. So, so a skua is a, it's an amazing bird. It's a bird that flies from the north to the south pole every year, mm-hmm. migrates. And for some reason, and they're really strong, that's the only, a, that's the 
that's the only living thing that you uh, find uh, in the continent itself, not along the sea, because as you know, first of all, 98% is covered mm -hmm. by ice, right. and there's nothing growing there. It's t you're, you're totally like isolated. So, you know, when we are like, I don't know, hundreds of miles from shore and suddenly a skua comes to check us out, you know, it's like, whoa, you know. <laughs> no, so, so, so there, to be honest, it's, it's exactly the opposite experience. It's an experience of uh, extreme uh, isolation and, and quiet and, and actually very nice. It's, you know, I... I compare it to being in outer space, but being able to breathe <laughs> because, you know, I mean, because, you know, there's sometimes like I remember myself working. I mean, we would try to work in pairs to be safe, but sometimes I caught myself uh, working uh, by myself about a mile and a half or two from anybody else. And it was really eerie, you know, because it was just so incredibly quiet and white there was nothing you know there and then suddenly a wind suddenly the, the wind will blow and and move a little string on the on the uh on the trailer behind the behind the skidoo and you'll jump you know yeah because there's you know there's nothing you know because there's also nothing to make noise yeah. generally oh man that's really creepy i wouldn't think yeah about that. yeah you know and there are no they know i there's also talked a lot about it with people is uh, your your senses become highly sensitized because there is nothing to stimulate them oh. hmm. you know no color no color no smell hmm. no noise except for the people you're with so um, when you come back to real <laughs> life you are you know, it's like uh, it, is, it is really overwhelming. Hmm. My, uh, I remember uh, uh, I gonna, my friend and mm -hmm. I took our kids camping for three weeks uh, when they were three. So they were very young and we went out and we went up to a bunch of national parks and stuff. And we came into town and went into a, a Target. And we felt that same way. So I can't imagine, <laughs> like, the difference of just being out, you know. We were just out oh, in the yeah. woods and yeah. in a national park. But we felt so overwhelmed. I can't imagine how being yeah, in the Antarctic yeah. for that long and then having that happen. Yeah, it is really it is really overwhelming. There was one, we were on the polar plateau for two and a half months. <laughs> and then a C-130 landed to take us back and as we uh, got in sort of, sort of into the plane the one of the loaders there the guys you know who works on the thing he was holding a uh, a box of juice and a piece of chicken you know and all of a sudden I had this urge to jump on him and <laughs> grab it from him it was like wow you know it's like I don't know what it was, like the smell or something. It was like, you know, it's like I had to hold myself. It was very strange. You know? Give me that chicken nugget. You know, it's those. Exactly. It's like, so, you know, you have this uh, because you are, uh, everything is so acute, you know, becomes so wow. strong because of the, uh, uh, 
Uh, I can tell you a lot more about, you know, uh, dimensions, about weird uh, uh, rainbows, about, you know, I mean, all this kind of about uh, whiteouts. You know, I mean, it's, you know, I'm sure that some places in the Northern Hemisphere you get the same, but you have to be really in an area that is flat and without any trees or anything, you know, nothing that also gives you any any perspective. Kansas, yep. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, <clears throat> okay. so I, I, I'm guessing that there's probably some of our listeners that aren't familiar with the concept of the Antarctic Traverse and why you would even do one. So would you explain what a field project would be that, or the field projects you were involved with that involved traversing the Antarctic? Yeah, so... Uh, Two of the three times that uh, I went down there, our project, our main purpose was, and I must mention it was with some good friends uh, from down under, from, from, from you know, New Zealand, uh, Tim Stern and some others, you know, Steve Bannister. Um, the idea was to um, try and understand why the Transantarctic Mountains are where they are you know or what they are so i mean i think it comes back to the curiosity there it so the transantarctic mountains uh, rise to about um, the highest point of the thing five thousand meters and they are over three thousand kilometer long and they are kind of in the middle of the continent and what are they doing there right you know i mean this is the typical scientist question why you know why are you here <laughs> <laughs> it's like <laughs> And we know, but of course, a lot of other mountain ranges, uh, like you know, like the Rockies, uh, you know, uh, like the Andes, the Himalaya, and stuff like that. And most of them, of course, are uh, Most of them actually rise, and which we can imagine by two plates compressing one against the other, and it's like the Earth is being crumpled, and it's easiest to crumple it up to a certain point because it's a free surface until gravity starts pulling everything down. Right. Uh, but uh, there, that's not the case, and that's what we try to understand. And at the time, so we started actually. Uh, so the friend of mine, Tim Stern, and I started. We were both. I was. We. I was a postdoc at Stanford, and he was. And he kind of came to visit. He was a visiting scientist, and we started talking about it. And we first wrote uh, a couple of papers to just to try and understand uh, how it could actually form and we had a model for it but then we said well we better check it out you know check how you know whether we're right or not right and so that's kind of that was a reason for the two field seasons and i must admit that uh we were only partially successful in being able to totally uh pin it down to this day there are actually two camps one is our camp and the other one is another <laughs> camp which actually as uh you know started by a very good friend of mine right. you know <laughs> so it's not uh you know thinking that it's a different theory of why of why they're up and people continue to work on it but i felt that in some ways that with the tools that we had, we really could only push it to a certain extent, and we thought we were right, but you know we didn't 
completely nail it down and you know so it was time to to vacate the stage and let others <laughs> do it and do say, something so you're else, not married so. to that idea so it's okay now you're not you're not going to take it personally well <laughs> well i'm well you know it is still which is funny you know when people would ask me i would say oh yeah you know it's because of this and this and this and that which is our theory you know to stand in mind but but uh uh, it's good to not to have to defend it or argue it or go again to conferences or write yet an empty <laughs> paper about you know why I'm right and the other person is wrong and you know <laughs> you know it's like <laughs> let somebody else do that so uh, you know so it's kind of uh, so there was a reason for us uh, to go there there was another thing where I stopped it, and this is you know the USGS went through a horrible time in 1995 because Newt Gingrich wanted to close the USGS as part of right. you know, <laughs> closing the government and down and stuff like that so uh, that was not the highest priority of the USGS so and I felt like well I had enough or oh, and oh there was a, a third reason probably the most important one first time I went to Antarctica my wife was pregnant <laughs> with our first daughter <laughs> Second time with our second daughter and third time with our third daughter. Oh my gosh! <laughs> so, wow. So I think that. Uh, so so I got the hint here. And <laughs> no. So more. no more no more Antarctic trips. <laughs> no more Antarctic trips. Yeah, maybe I so, shouldn't go at all. Okay. <laughs> well, well, she was she be you know I mean she was very very generous uh, all throughout time, but it did become a lot more difficult, you know. Yeah. So well and. I, as there were more exactly. children, so you know he wasn't. Well, and I heard that there's uh, there's a story about doing one of these seismic surveys and having to get a bulldozer and some dynamite across a very large drop off. That is correct. This is a. Uh, it is. A, it actually appears in one of the books. Even I think uh, somebody Elizabeth Archer wrote a book about, and she mentioned us to kind of. She made it into a. Uh, a fiction but right it was i think it was there and stuff i mean so the problem was that uh, uh he, well it was really crazy i mean <laughs> it was during the first it was during you know some of the stories sometimes i can't believe that they happened. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like <laughs> it's really surreal it was so in in uh, 19 you know what let me just lower down a little bit the microphone here uh, so in 1991, it was the first uh, Gulf War if you, it, with with Bush the father, you right. know, as a president. And apparently, and at the time, I can't rem I don't know who does it now, but at the time, the Navy was the one, uh, you know, providing all the logistical support in Antarctica. And uh, we had ten tons of dynamite that we wanted to fly to the deep field. Uh, Beardsmore Glacier, Beard, Beardsmore Glacier. It's a famous glacier that actually Scott went up on. So next to it, not not quite that one. And um, so the dynamite was in McMurdo, and but then the Navy refused to fly it without a express permission from the Indian Ocean Command. They belong to the Indian Ocean Command because you know that the Navy does not fly explosives. Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> they, they never put explosives on aircraft. No, 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 no. They never do that. So, so, <laughs> so you know how it is. Everything was supposed to be by right. 
uh, you know, if you had the right form, you could do buy it. Buy the right? book. <laughs> buy. If you had the, if you had the, oh, that's that's another story <laughs> I can tell you afterwards about the forms. You know, it's oh. like, so so we were sitting there for about almost a month in McMurdo uh, with and and technically the head of the NSF, the per person representing NSF, is in charge of the whole thing, so he can tell the Navy to do it. Right. But they didn't do it, and I think it was easier for for them to hope that we will uh, <laughs> simply uh, pack our bags and leave and say, oh, "Sorry, we can't do." It. But we did not, <laughs> so, so so we hung around, and uh, and then at the end, uh, some uh, and then at the end, I don't know. So he decided he had to do something. So he said, "Okay." You beakers, that's how they call it. You beakers, you know, stay out of it. We will bring you to the field area. Now the field area is about 600 kilometers from, from you know, McMurdo. So they took two D9s bulldozers. I don't know if you know, those are the largest They're bulldozers. Huge, yeah. Yeah. huge. One of them had a, a, a toad behind a sled with all the explosives and the other one towed behind a sled that had all the fuel for the two bulldozers. <laughs> and they were about to go all the way there. Except they didn't ask us at all. And we could have told them because uh, three years earlier when we were in the first season, we fell sort of, sort of in the crevasse field there. Somebody almost Somebody was fast enough to just catch themselves oh, like that, you know, oh, lifting wow. their arms and stuff. Like <laughs> so they started going there, and we were just sitting there, kind of humming and laughing to ourselves a little <laughs> bit to see what will happen. And uh, and of course, you know, they got 50 kilometers from you know McMurdo, and and they broke an ice bridge, and the first bulldozer with all the explosives fell in. Oh, <laughs> now. Now, luckily, uh, there were two things. One is that the bulldozer itself had the knife had the, you know, in the front, which was really wide. So at some point, about 50 feet or 30 feet down, it got jammed in, you know, it didn't continue to go. Oh. And the second thing that we're lucky is that the sled itself was kind of tilted halfway in, but never actually went all the, didn't slide all the way with all the 10 tons on top of the, of top of the bulldozer, which would have just killed them. Yeah. So they were sitting there. Now they were sitting in the middle, in the middle of a crevasse field. Okay. <laughs> so what are they doing now? <laughs> so now they had to send some search and rescue from the New Zealand uh, team. They are always very, very good. And then they brought, I can't remember, they brought another sled or something of that. Oh, no, or they unhitched the other sled. They pulled it out. No, no, sorry. I can't remember. They first, they, they had to unload, while they were standing on top of the crevasse, they had to unload all the explosives, put to the side, <laughs> pull out the sled, I think, or else they, they brought another sled, and load it back and bring it back to McMurdo. Oh. And they left the bulldozer there, and luckily, the two people that were in the bulldozer didn't get hurt, and they were pulled out of the crevasse. Right. So everybody just went back to McMurdo, at which point uh, somebody else, another person from NSF came and 
saw what was going on and said, you know, that can't be. And he told the Navy, you're flying it. <laughs> so the next day, of course, they flew it. <laughs> so, but if you want to know some more stories, you know, that was, and that was just, during the, just during the war. And I said, if that's the U.S. Navy and the U.S. Army, I'm really worried. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but apparently for them, it's kind of strange because... Uh, it's considered a demotion almost to be in Antarctica, whereas for all the rest of us, it's like, yeah. oh, <laughs> yeah, take me there any day, you know. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah, no, because it's amazing. So, so, uh, so of course they flew the first, they flew the first uh, load there, and then the uh, when they came to fly the second load, they brought the forklift with all the explosives to the back of the C-130 and the forklift dropped the explosives. <laughs> now, all of us know, all of us know that unless you have a, you know, unless you have a cap in it to actually blow it up, those are pretty inert, nothing will happen. But they were in such a pain. Oh. I, I, we just, <laughs> it's like, it, was an, it was unbelievable. There was an airplane in the air and they didn't let it land, you know, there's another friend of ours was in. <laughs> And then they, and you know, and in the first flight, of course, all the big wigs went with the flight, you know, like, what are they going to do? They're going to be blown away, blown up together. With, right. <laughs> we did not, we never understood the whole thing, you know, but it was kind of, so then they finally, they got everything in the field. And then one time we saw them actually flying, uh, there was a fuel drum and they put the primer cord around the fuel drum, you know, so they didn't even follow the <laughs> most reasonable. It was it was a nightmare and but but uh, you know but it was a very good field season when it started at the end you know it was like after a month or over a month and uh, we had good time and we got some guys i think we had a science paper there even you know it was a nice wow yeah. it was good it was a good job I, I love that that's sort of yeah. like one of our our, our go-to questions is like what's your most difficult field experience but i think that I, I think that wins. No that. one will ever top that. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. I know, you know, we've had, uh, uh, when I was at Penn State, we had a pretty active polar research group. I and know, yeah. Th sure. There was all kinds of stories and photos that would come back of, well, you know, we didn't have this part, so we used paper clips and duct taped them into the generator and all kinds of stuff <laughs> to get equipment to work in the field because you've only got a limited oh, amount yeah, of time and equipment. To. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. So, 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 who was it? So, so was it Shrida? Uh, of course, yes. Which with radars. Yeah, yeah Shrida, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. They just have to yeah, grab yeah. a skua well, and just, you know, go from there, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, but I can tell you, I mean, uh, except for the last time, the first two times, we decided to use a hot water drill. Oh, yeah. To, uh, to put the explosive down below, you know, I mean, uh, un under the ice. And it was very nice because you heat it up, and then at the end of the day, you'll take a hot bath outside, you know, <laughs> sitting there. So it was a big bath. So, so like, you know, three of us at the time would go in and sit in the middle of the snow <laughs> as, as the water cooled off, you know. So it was Man, that's a luxury because all I ever hear about is no one ever wanting, you know, you can't shower because it's so cold. So that's that's awesome no no well y y you basically cannot shower because there, there are no mm -hmm. showers that the last time we were on the polar plateau we didn't shower for two and a half months <laughs> and, <it> was, uh, <laughs> and with that heightened sense of smell you know <laughs> well 
No, actually there isn't because after a little while, all the bacteria also, most of them <laughs> die. You know, I mean, you don't kind of, I mean, well, and you also have to be careful not to sweat, right, right. you know, I mean, because if you sweat and then you get, you know, so you're, you're very careful about it. But what was really strange, I've been telling people, so when you come and you take your first shower, you don't realize how your how your skin actually extrude oil all the time. So first time you take a shower, it's like you have a layer of wax on your skin. Oh wow! Which apparently, in you know, was probably a mechanism against uh, against sunburn, yeah. for example, or things like that, and against perhaps even some you know mosquitoes or some other you know insects or mm-hmm. something like that. But it was very strange. It was like. Hey, what is it? You know, I mean, it's like, you know, you start taking off layers of, yeah. of wax oh, from your God. body. So. Oh, that's so incredible. Wow. So, <laughs> yeah. so, you know, many of those kind of stories. <laughs> yeah. So many research opportunities uh, right there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, it's true. So, you know, you've been chief scientist on all these cruises and expeditions. And I just I sort of wanted to ask you to look back to your first one. And what kind of advice can you give to, you know, those of us that are sort of up and coming and being in charge now? Like what what would you say to these people? Like how scary was that first experience? Well, I don't remember what my first one was, but, you know, I was before i was sort of in the army i was in the military so uh we did have to lead people so uh it wasn't it wasn't that strange for it wasn't that strange for me but um i would say there are a couple of things one has to realize one is especially when you work in the field you have to be extremely patient you shouldn't push things you don't push things against nature, you know. <laughs> you learn that very quickly, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, because you always lose, <laughs> you know. And and you have so you have to take the long view, and you have to say, well, you know, sorry, I cannot achieve that today. So it's not going to happen. Better than everybody is safe, and you know. Plus, it's really you know futile because it, there's always you know tomorrow, and tomorrow may be a great day, and you are able to do whatever you need to do, you know. But if you spend all your energy today fighting it you know you'll not get there i mean because tomorrow you'll be exhausted and the other thing too is it's a teamwork and you really are dependent on 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 your team you know it's not like one should not feel like because you are the chief scientist you are kind of the boss or you are the uh person out there or or up there everybody in the team has their own role and if uh uh, they don't fulfill their role, then you failed, you know, so you have to give people the respect and the room to perform what they know how to do best, you know, and not not push them, not to stand over their shoulder, not to kind of, you know, all the time, you know, it's good, you know, they're humans, they are professionals, they know what they're doing, they probably know, in my case, definitely, they know better than <laughs> me what they're doing, you know, so uh let them do that and you know and you are the cheerleader that you are you you know you have the long view and the long plan of what the priorities are where you want to go where you don't want to go what are you know if you have limited amount of time what to focus on or something of like that 
but then leave very often leave the and help the technical staff but leave them to do the work you know i mean because they know how to do it better and just give them always the sense of feeling good and then afterwards go go drink with them you know <laughs> have a good time that's the hard part <laughs> right <laughs> yeah. Yeah. so with no it's yeah oh, go ahead. so with with all of this experience i'm really curious where you think the field of geology or geophysics is going to be in 10 or 20 years i mean in terms of technology that we need or scientific advancements that are going to be made just well, what what you think is going to be really exciting in the next decade i mean especially with your experience coming up with all these you know the plate tectonic gurus as well like yeah what's what's next uh <laughs> maybe i will quote somebody who said can't remember who it was uh, you know, uh, he said, you know, predictions are notoriously hard, especially about the future. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I think that's a good answer. I guess, so true. you know, if, if, if we knew what the next big thing was in 10 years, that somebody would have a nature paper on it. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, 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 I think I think that it's not only that. I mean, what is really clear is that uh, our discoveries are... Uh, pushed by technology without technology you know you don't move to the next uh, step or the next stage so INSAR and GPS you can think of it uh, you know computing power uh, you know to do uh, you know, large-scale data mining or things like that that you have you know those things are really uh, dependent on uh, or I don't know if you know multi-beam bathymetry in the ocean you know to map the ocean oh, yeah. floor uh, there's so many examples uh, it amazes me always actually when you read some of the older papers how with so much little data and, and evidence some very very smart people already could see you know uh, some of the you know could understand what was going on uh, even though they couldn't if, even if they couldn't prove exactly mm -hmm. that that's what happened. So that's where saying that is really hard. Nowadays, for example, we have drones, you know, mm -hmm. and that opens up a whole new field and, and who knows where this will go, you know. So, and we have LIDAR, which we didn't have, you know. So a lot of those type of things, especially, especially sort of, you know, I think that in regard to the Earth's surface, the deeper Earth is a bit more difficult, and as time goes on, perhaps becomes more expensive. Right. And, you know, people are still not willing to drill into the Moho, for example. Yeah. You know, it's expensive. I mean, they have been talking about it since, I think, 1966 <laughs> or something That's like that. It so was Project mm -hmm. Moho, because I did my thesis in Hawaii, and we went over where they wanted to do the this you know thing but uh, uh, you know so there are things like that uh, uh, and I think the era of very large seismic experiment active seismic experiments is almost over because of all the environmental limitations mm. that they are and because of the expense you know right. you wish I mean it's kind of like maybe one day you know if you we did, uh, let's say, you know, 3D seismics. Uh, we could understand and learn a lot more. 
than we know now but it's beyond the reach of right now of you know NSF and other funding agencies so as a result you probably cannot make more progress if, if you don't have it yeah, it's like yeah. so you know it goes both ways right. <laughs> well and I, I have one final question that's actually not in our show notes we have a very good friend of the show Elicia White who hosts the embedded.fm podcast has part of their podcast called lightning round where they ask guests seemingly random questions and try to get their answers. And oh, okay. she has been looking for somebody that can answer yes to, have you ever touched a penguin or a pangolin? <laughs> pangolin. <laughs> I don't know what a pangolin is. Okay. They're very cute. Sorry. They're these little but... artwork looking things. <laughs> yes. Oh, really? <laughs> so I guess we'll have to go with but penguin then. <laughs> I, I uh, saw them and talked to them and they talked back to me, but I didn't touch them. Right. <laughs> They were close by, but uh, I didn't. But but I actually haven't seen too many penguins because we didn't uh, work near shore. Uh, we would go inland. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So only when we were in in you know McMurdo, we walked a couple of times, and I think we saw once. You know, we saw a penguin or twice <laughs> or something like that. But that was not. Uh, maybe if I had a chance. Uh, do you know? Uh, by the way, Cuddly Dudley. No. That's for you, <laughs> Canon. So, Cuddly Dudley uh, was a very, very popular book for my kids when they, when they grew up. So, Cuddly Dudley, Dudley I'm get they show a picture of, of, of a whole flock of a, or a colony of, mm-hmm. of, uh, of, you know, penguins. And he, and he likes to be by himself, but they all like to come and cuddle <laughs> next to him. So, he goes away and then he gets, of course, lost, you know. And worries, you know, and then at the end he finds himself back and everybody cuddles him and he's so happy finally <laughs> to be cuddled. <laughs> awesome. So this is Cuddly Dudley. That's somewhat the story. I can't remember exactly. <laughs> oh, I'm totally getting this book. I see it now on Amazon. It's it's in the, in the shopping cart already. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we will put the exactly. link in the show notes. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you for taking the time to join us. This yes. has been a, a real... In a real joy getting to talk to you and hear Absolutely. about some of these experiences. We appreciate it. Yeah. Well, thank you. You're very good interviewers. <laughs> That's good. Well, Shannon, that was a great interview, and I think we're going to have a hard time topping some of those stories for quite a while. But in an effort to keep the show to a manageable length, I think that we should go ahead and tell folks how they can find us and wrap up. Well, you can always send us your mailing address and we'll send you some awesome Don't Panic stickers and send that to us, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. Um, we're always on Twitter at Don't Panic Geo. John is at geo underscore Lehman. I'm at Shannon Doolin. And we are also in the Slack chat room. And remember, until next week, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding.